Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Well, let me start with a question, actually. Let me begin with a question that maybe you've never thought about. This is kind of an interesting Bible fact. Uh, there, have been, there have been three times in the Bible, three times in the Bible, when there was something that was directly written down, like physically written down directly by the finger of God. Can, do you remember what they are? Anybody remember? What's that? The Ten Commandments, and that is number one, correct. That was directly written on the tablet of stone by the finger of God. Yep, I'm hearing them both. Number two, Meeny Meeny Tekel Parsons. This is what we're looking at today in Daniel chapter 5 when the hand of God wrote on the wall, and Tim got the third one, and that was when Jesus wrote in the sand when the woman was caught in adultery. So we're going to be looking at the second one today, and then we're going to come around at the end of this message and look at all of those again. But we want to remember, before we go into this Old Testament passage from Daniel chapter 5, I just want to remind us what 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, and that is, all Scripture, and that's talking about everything in the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So let's begin by praying and asking God to help us to apply this Old Testament passage to our lives today for these purposes. Father, we thank you that we can look into your word. Thank you for giving us your word. And though you've only written three things directly with your finger that we know of on this earth. You have inspired men to write these words to us from your Bible, and they are infallible. And as we just read, we know they're, they're profitable to us for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. And so we pray that as we look at this chapter today, that you would give us, fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might be able to apply these things and learn from these things, and that you would equip us through the teaching of your word for every good work that we have the opportunity to do for you, Jesus. And we thank you. In, his, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, a little bit of background. D Daniel chapter 5. Last week, Joe taught us on Daniel chapter 4, and uh, that was a great message. But that was actually about 25 years before what we're going to be looking at today chronologically. So there's a big gap of about 25 years in between where chapter 4 ended and where chapter 5 begins. And in fact, uh, there is about 70 years of difference between the beginning of this chapter, chapter 5, and when Daniel was initially brought into Babylon way back in chapter 1 as a teenager. So, so that tells us that Daniel's a pretty old man in this chapter. He's, if he was 15 back in chapter 1 when he was first taken captive, then uh, he's, he's probably about 85 years old in this chapter. And uh, we're going we're gonna to see that 
the scene picks up in chapter 5 here with a pretty wild and crazy party. And the king that's mentioned here isn't Nebuchadnezzar. So all the way from one chapter 1 through 4, the king we've been dealing with is Nebuchadnezzar. He has since passed away. And this uh, man named Belshazzar is his grandson. And you're going to notice that it, it says that Nebuchadnezzar is his father. Belshazzar is his son. But he was probably grandfather and grandson, and there is no difference in the original language for those words. It's kind of like when we say Jesus was the son of David. He was an ancestor of David, but he wasn't the direct son. In the same way, Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar, it's going to say. So a little bit of background there just to help us understand where we pick it up in chapter 5. And let's begin there, verses 1 and 2. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines, and his concubines might drink from them. So, the scene is there's a huge party going on. And uh, there's a thousand VIPs here. There's a ton of food. There are gallons and gallons of alcohol flowing. Uh, there are, their wives are present. And their concubines, his concubines are present. Concubines are, were Babylonian women who were purchased for the purpose of sexual pleasure. So the wives are there. The concubines are there. The alcohol's there. And it's a, it's a complicated party. The interesting thing about this party, though, is that at the same time as this is going on, outside the walls of Babylon, so there, there are these walls, I think they were, if I remember right in my studies, 80 feet uh, thick, and I think 300 feet wide, I'm not positive, or 300 feet tall, they were big. But outside of these walls, there was an army, actually two armies combined, gathered, waiting to sneak in that night and take over the city. So, if you remember back in chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar had this dream about this giant image with a gold head, you remember that? Anybody remember the next portion down, the chest and arms, what they were made of? That was the silver portion. And that image, Daniel, Daniel uh, interpreted that dream one of the parts of that interpretation was that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom would come to an end, Babylon would come to an end, and another army, that's the silver army, would come in and take over. That army is the army, the two arms, the Medes and the Persians combined. And so they are waiting right now outside of the city during this party to take over. And they were, Belshazzar should have been watching for this. Because not only did he have all of the history that his grandfather, I'm sure, would have talked to him about, but he had other, there were prophecies in the book of, uh, or from the prophet Isaiah and pro, from the prophet Jeremiah, and it was pretty well known that the Jewish prophecies were predicting King Cyrus to take over Babylon one day. Well, those two armies that I told you about, the Medes and the Persians who are waiting outside, are led by King Cyrus. So he's in command right now. Belshazzar should have at least been watchful. Instead, 
he was partying and living it up. So he was warned. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, we look down on Belshazzar for this. He wasn't a good king. He wasn't prepared. He wasn't alert. And even historical documents will tell us that. We see it here in the scriptures. But there are times, there are times when we aren't much better than Belshazzar. We aren't as alert as we should be. We aren't watching. And sometimes we can even go as far as maybe he did where we are using pleasure or comfort or entertainment to kind of distract us from from danger that's coming on outside of our situation. We might have spiritual danger lurking outside the walls of our current situations. And isn't it easy at times to just kind of distract ourselves with partying, with pleasure, with mindless entertainment, just being wrapped up in those things instead of facing the reality of whatever could be coming against us. So as we look at this real and physical, historical account of what happened to Belshazzar, we need to take those spiritual parallels. That's what we do from the Old Testament to the New. We take those spiritual parallels and apply them to our lives. So God's Word tells us very clearly that we have an enemy. We have an enemy and he is lurking about, just like the Medes and the Persians, lurking about. But our enemy is is compared to a lion, a hungry, roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he's there. He's there outside of the walls of your life right now. He's there every day. And we have to be aware. We have to stay alert. We can't just distract ourselves with, with pleasure, with partying, with just trying to be happy like Belshazzar was. And so the main idea, just in this little section of these first two verses that I want to emphasize for us today. Do you stay on top of your spiritual situations? Do you stay on top of your spiritual situations? Or are you you busy distracting yourself with pleasure? Be watchful and stay spiritually alert. Don't fall into the apathy that Belshazzar fell into. Because that's how Satan gets a foothold in our lives. I heard one pastor say one time that Satan's main tactic today isn't destruction. It's distraction. And so we can't be distracted. We need to stay alert lest we be like Belshazzar. So I know it sounds crazy, but millions of people today are not staying alert. And maybe they're not having the wild parties like this, but in the same way, they're distracting themselves with pleasure and with just casual things. So we need to stay alert. Daniel chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Let's move along. Verse 3, They then brought in the golden vessels that that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So what's happening here is Belshazzar's taking his party to even another level of sinfulness. As if it wasn't sinful enough already, he's actually taken the the golden vessels that years ago, King Nebuchadnezzar, when he 
overthrew the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple. He took these vessels and, and probably put them on display somewhere just as a prize of his, uh, of his conquering that, that temple and that city. But Belshazzar actually takes them and uses them, uses them in his, his party. And that was in ancient Jewish culture and in, even in Babylonian culture in that day, that, was, that would be seen as, as a challenge. Like, like he's calling God out. He's saying, yeah, there's this God from this temple that, that my grandfather took over and they took these, these cups, these golden vessels. Well, we're going to use them tonight and I'm going to show that God who the real man is. That's kind of what he's saying when he does this. And that is extremely dangerous, calling God out. So... Um, we, we might give Belshazzar a bad rap for doing this, and we should, because it's a, it was a bad thing to do. It was a heinous sin, and we're going to see the result of it in just a minute. But I want to point something out here. The fact of the matter is, when we sin, when we sin, and specifically when we sin in a certain way, we are doing far worse than what Belshazzar did. So again, let's take this physical account and apply it to our lives spiritually. I want to I show you a passage from 1 Corinthians that helps you understand what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, tell us, flee from sexual immorality. And that just means anything that is against God's will sexually. Anything from acting out to just your thoughts. Jesus clarified that even even sexually immoral thinking, uh, lusting in your heart sexually, that's all equal. So that's all sexual immorality. Flee from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now what does that mean? Listen to the next verse. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So before we come down too hard on Belshazzar for abusing and misusing these vessels that were taken from the temple, which were sacred, think about this. Have you ever sinned sexually, even in your thought life? And if you have, you've done far worse because you've not only abused and misused the golden vessels, but you've abused and misused the whole temple. That's what he means when he says you've sinned against your own body, and your body is the temple of God. So the main idea here, the main lesson we can take from this section, Belshazzar abused the cups, but are you guilty of abusing the whole temple? See, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that means that we are very, that our body is very important to God. Very important to God. And we should treat our bodies, and that includes our brain, which includes our thoughts, with dignity and honor and worth because they're very dignified because of who God says we are, of what God says we are, His temple. So, when we do that kind of thing, we desecrate the temple. And we shouldn't do that for God's sake. 
because of who, we says, who, who he says we are. So this is serious stuff, what Belshazzar did. It's serious stuff, what we can do. And I don't want to say this to beat us up. Here's, here's the reason that I'm making these comparisons. I think, one, God wants us to take the Old Testament and make these comparisons to our lives. But two, we can often look down on these people in the Old Testament. And yeah, Belshazzar was an evil king and he was wrong. But we all need the mercy of God. We all need the righteousness of Jesus Christ because when we look at it from God's eyes, we're not much better. And so that's how this is pointing us, and we'll see it more clearly at the end, to our need for Jesus Christ. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Immediately, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. I love the, the detail in this. And when I think, I, I can't help but think when his knees are knocking together. I know I mentioned the Tom and Jerry cartoon a lot. I don't really still watch it, but when I did when I was a kid. I, sometimes I do with my kids. But I love that cartoon. And I remember, some of you might remember uh, Tom, the cat. His knees would always knock together when Spike, that dog, came in. That bulldog with the collar with the spikes. And they were, they were like hitting together. So I'm picturing Belshazzar here, like Tom, with his knees knocking together. It says his color changed, and he was just, he was scared to death. Um, it's, it's, it's just a, a sobering time for him. So he's living it up, he's partying, all these people, they're, they're drinking, and really, I think what happened here is the beer buzz came to an instant halt. This is like the record for the fastest sobering up in history because they see this supernatural hand just writing something down on the wall. Another, another thing I think of, you guys are going to think I just watch TV all day, but I, I think about those old Western movies where the, the bad dude like swings open the saloon doors and he walks in and the piano just stops and like everybody stops in their poker games and they all stare at him. I think that's kind of what happened here when that hand appeared. And God showed up to crash the party. There's a time coming, and we don't know when it's going to be. It could be today, it could be a thousand years from now. But God's going to show up on earth, and he's going to crash the party. And for those of us who are, who are in Christ, we're safe. And we're actually, like we were singing about a little while ago, we're looking forward to that day because there's no more suffering, there's no more pain. We're going to be able to see our loved ones that have gone before us. It's going to be a great, great time. But there are people in this world who, like Belshazzar, are just, they're just living it up. And they're ignoring this truth that God is going to come. And listen, Belshazzar, we can get on Belshazzar because he had these warnings, but we have so much more today. We have the whole scripture to tell us this. We have all of these witnesses throughout history. We know that there's a day when God's going to come. And we're told in the scripture, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be like in the days when he comes again. And it's kind of like that today. You've got people just partying, doing their own thing, 
not concerned at all about spiritual things. So this, this is a, a warning to those who aren't Christians, but this can also be a warning to Christians because Jesus said that we need to be prepared as believers when he shows up. First John tells us that if we're not, we could shrink back in shame, and I think what that means is we would shrink back realizing the life we've wasted, the opportunities we've wasted. And there will come a day where he'll wipe away every tear, but I think a lot of those tears are going to be because we realize we really just wasted so much of our lives. So we need to be ready. We need to be ready for that day. The main idea again here in this section is the world doesn't think about this. Uh, Jesus is coming one day to crash the party on earth. Are you ready? Are you ready? So Belshazzar wasn't. And his time came. God showed up. He was caught in the act. So what does he do? Verses 7 through 12. The king called loudly to bring the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its, an, shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. The purple is just a ro- the color of royalty and wealth. So he's going to make this guy rich if, if anyone can read the writing on the wall. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known the king's and or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. And the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. So she wasn't there. She wasn't at the party, but she hears about this. She comes in and declares, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom, this is, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the day of your father, light, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. So this is like 25 years before the queen remembers this happening, and she reminds him, it says, because... An excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. And I wonder if the queen, maybe, maybe she, was, she had become a, a follower of the true God because she wasn't at the party and she knew about Daniel. I don't know, just speculation. But you would think... Belshazzar should have remembered this. You would think that he should have been on top of this. But the queen had to come in and remind him. And one of the things in this section that sticks out to me is this. And really this this has stuck out to me through this whole book. You remember Nebuchadnezzar when he had a problem, like a dream or whatever that he wanted solved. He always went to the the secular counselors. He always went to these non-spiritual people his magicians, his enchanters. He went to them first before he went to Daniel every time. And we can often do that. We can forget about going to God's word first. And that's exactly what Belshazzar did again. This is why it sticks out to me. It's happening again and again. 
So Belshazzar goes to these guys. They don't know the answer. And again, he has to call Daniel in. You would think he would have learned by now. We should always go to God. We should always go to God to solve our problems, our spiritual problems. These are spiritual things. This is a hand writing on the wall. These are dreams that need to be interpreted. And when we have spiritual issues, and I'll say this, there are, there are physical problems, there are mental problems, there are spiritual problems, but really the spiritual issues, can't, they come first. They come first because the, the, the physical was made from the spiritual. The spiritual issues come first, and that's where we should go first. It doesn't mean we shouldn't seek to um, find our physical problems through doctors or anything like that. But what I'm saying is when we have problems that are spiritual, we need to go to God first, not the counselors of the day like Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar did. They turned again and again. See, God says in, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. And he's speaking to mankind here. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Secular wisdom, worldly wisdom, can never, ever provide the answers for spiritual problems. And we can forget to go to God first. So here's the main thought here. When you have a problem, you have a spiritual issue, go to God first. Go to God in prayer. Go to His Word. And if it doesn't work out for you, which I understand, sometimes it doesn't seem like that solves the problem. If it doesn't work out, don't be so quick to dismiss it for the world's wisdom. See, we've got to sometimes stick with God, keep going to Him. And He sometimes takes His time in solving our problems, problems and helping us. But if we feel that He's failed us, the problem isn't God. The problem is that we were too quick to give up on Him. Many, many times, that's the problem. So, Belshazzar should have gone to Daniel first, but he didn't. We continue in verse 13. Then Daniel was brought before the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, they've been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third in the kingdom. I'll make you rich and famous, he's saying. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and your rewards to another. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So Daniel walks in and I mean, you can imagine what he's thinking. There are, uh, there's, you know, these golden vessels scattered everywhere probably. People are probably trying to cover themselves up. There's a strong smell of alcohol in the room. And he's probably not surprised because he's been living in Babylon for 
probably 85 years now, and from day one, Babylon was a pagan nation, and a lot of this kind of thing was going on. So he, he may be disappoint, disappointed, but he probably wasn't surprised. Well, in a way, in a way, um, our culture, our country, is becoming, I think, more and more like Babylon. Daniel was the minority in his pagan nation because he was a Jew and he was a God follower. And everybody else was partying, everybody else was you know, doing their thing. And I think it's becoming more and more like that for, for Christians and for the, the morals that we believe in and subscribe to today. And you can even see this if you just take a, a narrow look at, at our country and our culture over time. Uh, for example, you know, back in the 60s, and I wasn't alive then, but Mark was, and he told me this, that back in the 60s, um, the, it, was, it was really unusual for uh, people to live together before they got married. And, and living together prob- means you're, they're probably sinning sexually. That was very unusual. And I, there was even a statistic that I had seen that said, that uh, I think it was 10% or less of the people in our country did live together before they were married. I'm just pointing this out as a statistic because in 2012, um, one survey that I saw said that 70% of people live together before they get married. And, and you can see the difference just from 1960 to 2012, if that's accurate, and I think it probably is, that's a huge difference. So the cultures, the line, the boundary line of what is acceptable has really moved a lot in just those few decades. And you can look at a lot of different things. You can look at pornography, for example. Uh, you know, I, I was alive before the Internet, and I can remember before the Internet, it, it doesn't seem like it was nearly as prevalent as today. Or other sexual sins, uh, uh, one that might be very obvious would be homosexuality. Um, I can remember back in, in the 90s, most people, most people in the country would have thought that is an immoral act. And, and God's Word does say that any of these sexual sins that I'm talking about are immoral acts. God's Word says that that sexual purity is sex between a married man and a married woman. So this is from, from God's Word. So back 1990, pre-1990, I can remember the majority of people thinking that. And even at college, because I went, to, I went to IUP in the 90s. But there's a completely different culture now. And I'm just saying, look at the culture, where it's, it's, very, it's accepted, it's normalized, and even, even celebrated. So, why am I pointing this out? Because look how that line, in just in the couple decades, has moved. That boundary line of what's right, what's wrong, as interpreted by the majority of people, has moved really, really far. And it's actually gotten very far from God's Word, where it was much closer then. What's it, what is it gonna be, where is it going to be at 20 years from now? I mean, think about that. Some of the things that we might think are way out of bounds right now. I can see that line moving up to where those things become normal. So 
we are becoming more and more residents of a culture like Daniel was a resident of, Babylon. But the great thing about Daniel is he's an example to us because he stood firm in his faith. And his faith was derived from God and his word. And so we need to make sure, we need to make sure that we're not swept away by the current of what everybody says is good and acceptable and normal in our culture. And if we're not buckled down and fastened to God's word on a regular basis, we're going to be washed away. We're going to be washed away. And I want to, I want to really strongly encourage young people especially because young people grew up in this. But Daniel pretty much grew up in it too because he was there most of his life Yet he still, we're told, prayed three times a day. He did that as a discipline. He prayed three times a day. He was, he was just fastened to God's word. And we have to be too. And so for the young people here who are, who are just, you've lived in this culture most of your lives, keep steadfast in your faith. Keep steadfast in God's word. And don't be swept away. And Daniel, we see when he approached Belshazzar, his faith was under fire. I mean, he could have been killed. Belshazzar could have just annihilated him if Daniel told, said something Belshazzar didn't like. That's how these kings were. But Daniel, he learned that when his faith was under fire, he needed to be bold for God regardless of the consequences. And so I want to encourage all of us, be bold for God when you're at work and nobody else is a Christian. Be bold for God when you're at school, when you're dealing just with our culture where it's not popular to stand for truth. Be bold for God. See, Daniel, Daniel, I don't think Daniel was just naturally like that. Like, I don't think you can say, well, that's Daniel. He was just really talented in that. I'm not. That didn't come from talent. That came from exercising his faith over the years, many, many times. And it's just like physical exercise. If you don't exercise your faith, it'll be weak. And so I don't think it's an excuse to say, well, my faith is weak. I can't really do that. Start exercising it because every day God gives us an opportunity, an opportunity to be bold for him and speak out for him and just start with something small. If you're going to start a physical exercise program, you don't just jump in and run a marathon. You start small and you work up. So pray about it. God, what can I say for you today to exercise my faith that would be a light in this dark world that might be a little bit challenging, might get me out of my comfort zone a little bit? The more we can get out of our comfort zone and exercise our faith, the stronger we're going to be in our faith. And I'm telling you, we need to be strong today. So how is your faith under fire? If it's weak, exercise it more. Daniel feared God more than men, and you could, you could really tell that he did with his boldness. Verses 18 through 28. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. So this is uh, Daniel now responding to Belshazzar. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would he killed and whom he would he kept alive and whom he would he raised up and whom he would he humbled 
But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. His body was met with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. So Daniel's rehashing what happened. And you can tell Daniel had some respect for Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar came around through God's humbling of him. Verse 22, And you his son, Belshazzar, now think of this, picture this as it's happening. Daniel's standing up the most powerful man in the world who's probably a lunatic, but he's bold. You, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose, in whose all your ways you have not honored. So Daniel's pointing out all the reasons here that the king should have known better, and he boldly convicts him. Verse 24. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. So this hand's there the whole time. It goes away. The writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Meanie, meanie, tekel, and parson. So those are the words that were written up on the wall. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Meanie. This means God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris. Or Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. So Belshazzar kept his word. That night, that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. So, here in this section we've just read, Daniel says, basically, Belshazzar, you have, you've called God out. You've, you've given a challenge to the Most High God of the universe who created you, who gives you breath, and you lost. Meaning your kingdom has been taken away. Tekel, you have been judged and found wanting. Parson, you've been found guilty. And your kingdom is done. It's going to King Cyrus and the Medes and the Persians. We can't call God out and win. Nobody can challenge God and win. He's very long-suffering. But eventually, the day will come, as it did for Belshazzar. Now, it says here in the writing, God's telling Belshazzar, you, you don't measure up. You've been weighed in, in the balance and you've been found wanting. In other words, you don't measure up, Belshazzar. You don't measure up. And I want us to think about this carefully. Because it was very true and obvious, Belshazzar didn't measure up. But 
Think about it. Do you measure up? Do, do any of us measure up? Let's take the best person in this room, the person who has sinned the least, who's done the most good. Does that person measure up if God weighs us? If God measures us? What is God's standard? What is God's standard for measuring up? Because we're all going to stand before Him one day. And He's going to measure us. Well, what is His standard? How is He going to measure us? How does that all work? Well, at the beginning, we talked about three times God wrote with His finger that we know of in, in this world from the Bible. The first, the first one, which Albert told us, was when He wrote the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone. That was the first time. Well, what are those Ten Commandments? Those Ten Commandments... Those Ten Commandments were God's standard for Israel. They were God's standard for the nation of Israel. He said, this is what you have to live up to. This is my righteousness. But 2,000 years ago, God came in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ said, I have fulfilled that law. I am the fulfillment of that law. And He is. He did fulfill it. But he also still is the fulfillment. And that means that he now is the standard for our righteousness. That law reflected Jesus. And Jesus is perfection. And the scriptures tell us that God's standard is perfection. Perfection. The book of James says that if anyone keeps the whole law and sins in one little point, he's guilty of breaking it all. And the thing is, Every single person in this room and in this world is guilty then of breaking the whole law. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us measure up. And so if we're standing before God on our own merit, we could be right there with Belshazzar. You've been weighed in the balances and you're found wanting. You don't measure up. We've all fallen short. And here, here's another thought. Belshazzar had really a small amount of information about God compared to us today. I mean, we have so much information, so much evidence about God and about this gospel truth. We have the whole scriptures. He just had a few prophets' words. But we have all of this. And God tells us in Luke 12, 48... Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. What that means is we are held to an even higher judgment than Belshazzar. So that standard goes up for us because we have been given more. We've been entrusted more. We all know the truth. It's what do we do with that truth now? Do we, do we have to live up to it? Well... To answer that question, where do we go from there? I mean, if you have to be perfect, if that's the standard, and we've all sinned, then it's, it's already shot, right? Let's look at the third time, though, that God wrote with his finger on this earth. Tim pointed out that was when, when Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, wrote in the sand. And you might remember the story. Uh, the Pharisees, those were the religious leaders of the day, brought a woman to Jesus. And this woman had been caught in the act of adultery. 
So they grabbed her and they drug her to him. I don't know where the guy was. Maybe he jumped out the window or something. But they just bring the woman and they throw her down before Jesus. You might remember they, uh, they were ready to stone her because she'd been caught. She was guilty, right? She'd been weighed and measured and they, they, they assess she doesn't measure up. She is, she is guilty. And I love what Jesus did. He, as they're preparing to stone her for her sinfulness, as they're convicting her and condemning her, Jesus basically just ignores them and he stoops down and he just starts doodling something in the sand. And we don't know, we're not told in the scriptures what he was writing. And there, there are a couple of good uh, thoughts, some speculation about what he wrote. Uh, one of those things, one of those uh, thoughts, those ideas, a popular opinion is that maybe Jesus was, maybe he knew the names of those Pharisees that brought her. And he maybe was writing their name and he knew their sins. Their secret sins that they knew they were guilty of. Maybe he was writing, you know, Joseph stealing from the back room at work on November 3rd. And, and Joseph just drops his stone and takes off because he doesn't want to be called out. Maybe he writes, you know, Tom. And Tom sees his name being written and gulps and says, I, I think my wife's calling me for dinner. I'll see y'all and leaves. I don't know. It could be that Jesus was doing that and he was convicting them to show them they had sin because, remember what he said, he said, let him who has no sin throw the first stone. And I love that. But we don't know if that's what Jesus wrote. Other people speculate that maybe Jesus wrote what was written on the wall. Meeny, meeny, tekel Parsons. And the Pharisees would have known what that meant. And that could have... That could have really shocked them and caused them to drop their stones and leave. We don't know what he wrote. But what we, do, what we do know is that Jesus said, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. And what Jesus was doing here was showing his mercy because none of us measure up. None of us. So the third time God wrote in the sand, whatever he wrote, he was revealing his mercy that he, he comes and he judges us all on that scale of perfection. But he doesn't come to judge the world that first time. He said to the woman, he said, where are your, the people who condemn you? And she said, nowhere. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus didn't come that first time to judge. He came to save. And we still have the chance if there's anyone here who hasn't believed in him, you still have the chance to be saved before he comes the next time for judgment. You still have the chance. And all that requires is that we look to Jesus Christ for who he really is and what he really did. And what he did is he became a man so that he could die for the payment, the total forgiveness of your sins. And, and my sins, all of our sins. And whosoever believes in him, the Bible says, will not perish, but will be given this gift of eternal life. And so, 
How do we measure up those of us who believed in him? It's not by our own merits. It's by Jesus' merits. We get his righteousness. Therefore, his perfection is given to us, is written over our account, and we can say, because I'm in Christ, I measure up. So if you believe in Jesus Christ and who he is, that he's God who became a man, that what he did, that he died for your sins because you, you don't measure up and you need him. If you call on the name of the Lord, believe in him, receive him, all this biblical language, you will be saved. And you can believe that. You can trust in that because God says it. And so because of his great love for us, he sent his son And Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 remind us, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Jesus doesn't want us to be like those Pharisees looking down on other people because of their sin. We need to realize, I'm a sinful person too, but I am saved because of Jesus Christ, not because of my own works, lest I should boast. So, if you believe in Jesus Christ, all of you who have believed in Jesus Christ, and all of you who maybe just did, if there's anyone here who hasn't, if you do that now, here's what happens. God writes something else. He writes something else. He writes your name in a book by his throne called the Book of Life. And your name will be there on Judgment Day. There are two books that God will open up on Judgment Day. One is the book of life, and the other one is a book where everything everybody did has it, written, has it all recorded and written down. And if, if you're judged by that book, you're not going to measure up. So I want my name in the other book, the book of life, because that's the book where we're judged by Jesus, and he is perfect. So God used his mighty hand way back when he wrote the Ten Commandments to, to command us, He used his mighty hand with Belshazzar to condemn him, but he used his mighty hand to show his great mercy for all of us. And I am very, very thankful for that mercy. So let's uh, end in prayer and let's stand and we'll have the band come up and sing that final song to remind us of Jesus' mercy so we can focus on him as we sing. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for your great mercy. Thank you for your word in the Old Testament, these stories about this evil king, Belshazzar, and this man of faith, Daniel. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to exercise our faith. I pray that you would help us to be just rooted in your word so that we might be steadfast. And I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone here whose name is not written in the book of life, that before we are done with this last song that they would believe in Jesus Christ and that they would seek to follow him all the days of their lives. Help us all to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.